is able, isn't he? That's what he read. <clears throat> um, but, you know, another part of that, you know, he can do anything, everything. He's fully capable. But in so many instances, we have to be willing to, don't we? <laughs> so sometimes it's, you know, the full package where he's able, of course, and we have to be willing to allow him to work in us in that way. Thank you, worship team, for leading us and leading us to the throne. Um, I want to pray now for Daniel Owen's dad, who is in his last hours. You know, we don't know for sure, but he's kind of ridden, riddled with cancer, and the doctors put him on hospice, and he's been at home. Uh, he's been making it, he's been being bra very brave and making it real easy for his family as he is just saying he's ready to go home with the Lord and be with the Lord. There is a problem about uh, having some morphine. I guess they've run out at home and they said they can't get any more right away or something. I don't know the, the details of that, but that's something we can also pray for because it could be very painful if he doesn't get the right medicine, the right help. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, the way that you are so faithful and the way that you help us and lead us and guide us and teach us. We do pray for Daniel's dad, Scott. Lord, we thank you that he knows you. He's known you for years. He's served you. Father, we thank you for his bravery as he faces his last days, last hours. We do pray for this matter of the morphine, dear Lord. We pray that you would allow him not to be in intense pain. Lord, that you would take care of that problem. We pray for Daniel and Camille and the kids and the brothers and sisters. Lord, that you would comfort them and help them. And for Toretta. And we know that they're all facing it in a good way, trusting in you. Pray that you would continue to strengthen them and help them. And may this be just a time of looking to you and just being thankful that we know where Scott will, will go and spend eternity. We thank, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we enter the Easter season, we're going to start a series of Easter sermons, I'm struck again and again with how shallow my understanding was of the Christian faith in all my years of going to church very regularly and sitting under religious instruction in school. Now, it probably would have helped if I had ever opened a Bible during that time, but when we, we seriously look into the scriptures and we follow the storyline that God has given us in the scriptures, we know that because he loves us, he has given us what we need to know. And if we take it to heart, it is absolutely life-changing and enriching, isn't it? If we treasure the scriptures and we take it to heart, put it in our minds and hearts, then we have the Holy Spirit who makes it real in our lives, who brings understanding. So 
He has inspired the Bible and he's living inside of us. So we have the author living inside of us to help us interpret it even. And of course, we can use other tools and people to help understand it. And that's the key is that we treasure the scriptures because God has given them to us as such a special gift. And I'd like to begin our Easter season series this month of March with the story of the death of Lazarus. And there's a good reason to start with Lazarus and his death. And we'll find that out in a few minutes. But Lazarus was a close friend of Jesus. He dies very unexpectedly. You know, Jesus and his disciples were with him and then left and then found out a few days later that Lazarus was going to die. And so the apostles say, well, let's get back there. And Jesus says, no, we're going to wait. And then Jesus had everything you know, planned out to the day or minute or whatever. And I'm passing over a lot of details because we're moving to something else. But Lazarus, as they get there to Bethany where he was entombed, he is absolutely verifiably dead. Everyone knows that. He's been entombed for four days. But Jesus calls him out of the grave, and out comes Lazarus, fully alive. Now, the reason I start here is because this incident of Jesus raising Lazarus is like the last straw in the minds of Jesus' enemies. They say because of this raising of Lazarus and people seeing it, there were a lot of people there when he came out of the grave. He says if they don't do something quick about this, that Jesus and his influence, when people come and start looking at all the miracles he's doing and signs he's doing, says it won't be long before the Romans will come and take away their nation and their, and their temple. So right then and there, they plot to kill Jesus. They have to, in their minds, in order to keep control, in order to, to stay in power. And why did the Jewish relig religious leaders feel like they had to get rid of Jesus? Well, they reasoned that if they don't get rid of him soon, more and more people will believe in him because of those signs. And then if they start proclaiming him as the Messiah, the Romans will come and take away their temple and nation, like I said, because he would be a threat, you know, to their, to their rule. Now, these religious leaders, <clears throat> you know, you're talking about a man who raised the dead and taught the scriptures, and they're more worried about, okay, what's that going to be, what's that going to do to our power? We're going to lose our power over people if this guy comes in and is able to do the things he's doing. Jesus could wreck their whole, you know, plan and everything they've worked for to establish their authority and their power, and they exercised a lot of authority and power, didn't they? And as we go through the Gospels, we see this over and over again, that they are jealous for their power. It seems they have their sights, as we're going to look into this, it seems like the, the Jewish religious leaders those that we hear about, they have their sights set on earthly treasures, not on heavenly eternal rewards. So they give orders that anyone who has any knowledge as to where Jesus is, 
They must report it to the Jewish authorities or they will be punished. So we have Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, undeniably after four days in the grave, in the tomb. Many people saw it with their own eyes. They saw him coming out, and then they told many more people. And so the religious leaders, feeling more and more desperate to get rid of Jesus, they end up even deciding to kill Lazarus because he's proof positive that Jesus can do miracles, right? Now, I'd like us to look at the first eight verses of John chapter 12 and see where we go with this. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, you're going to see that this is a very important point, so it's already mentioned again. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So Mary comes with this very expensive perfume. She pours it on Jesus' feet with her hair, wipes her feet, his feet with her hair. Judas complains that this could have been used to help the poor. But then John lets us know that that really wasn't Judas' concern, right? He used to just take from the money purse. Now, the important thing here is what Mary did was very extravagant. You know, at times, there would be a special guest coming to people's homes, and they could receive an anointing with oil. They'd pour it on the head, and that was to express the respect toward that guest. But it was usually just poured on the head and not in such a large amount. But Mary uses a huge amount of very expensive oil. And and I didn't mention, usually it wasn't expensive oil that they'd pour on, olive oil or something like that. But Mary uses a huge amount of very expensive oil on Jesus' feet. And the fragrance filled the house. That means there was a lot. It, It wafted through the whole house. So her gesture was very extravagant, and that's John's point here. And her over-the-top action showed her tremendous love and respect to the point of worship by pouring so much expensive oil on Jesus' feet and then wiping his feet with her hair. So we're talking extreme here. We're talking extravagance. Now, at this point... 
the apostles, as they're there in the room, they're thinking, hey, this is kind of extreme, you know, because in two other gospel accounts, it says the, the apostles were, were, you know, talking about how much it was, how much it was over the top. I'm sure that their motives were different than Judas's, not that they wanted to, you know, pilfer the, the money bag, but it just shows us that it was, you know, an extreme measure that was taking place, an extravagant sacrifice for Mary. So what about this over-the-top act? And then what about Jesus' reply to it? You would almost think that Jesus would say something like, you know, when everybody's going, oh, what's going on here? You'd almost think Jesus would say, okay, okay, it was a little extreme, but Mary is just showing her love. You know Mary. You know how she does things. This is the way she does things. But no, Jesus says that what Mary did was very proper. And his reason was because God was using Mary's extravagant love for Jesus as the anointing of Jesus' body for his death burial. The Son of God who would be sacrificing his body for the sins of the world. And the, and the anointing was going to be on that body that would die for the sins of the whole world. And his soon coming death and burial would be the opening of the gates of heaven for all who turn to him for forgiveness. In other words, Mary could not have been extravagant enough for how God was using this anointing. And of course, you know, Mary, I'm sure, didn't really understand the full significance and how totally proper her anointing actually was. I'm thinking in Mary's mind, she was just probably expressing her sincere, deep love for Jesus. And in her mind, she couldn't show him enough love. Now, if we go back to verse 7, when Jesus replies, she, he says in his second sentence, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. <clears throat> It's not talking about Mary intending that it be used for the day of his burial. It's talking about God intending that Mary would do this in the, for the day of his burial. It was God the Father using Mary and her extravagant love for Jesus to anoint his body as the holy, sinless sacrifice to pay for the sins of the whole world. God works all things together for good, doesn't he? And he brings in all the angles. He uses all the angles, brings in all the, the, those who are involved. And even though we may be clueless as to the significance of the matter when certain things happen, God has control and he's bringing it all together. Just think of this. <clears throat> This is the official anointing, we learn from this verse, of the body of the eternal Son of God who would become the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And as clueless 
sin-affected humans, we say, isn't that a waste of perfume? We don't even come close to knowing the true significance that it was intended for the burial of our Savior. I mean, we can't even imagine how significant it was for the body of Christ to be anointed with this oil. Now, the next thing John tells us about is Jesus entering Jerusalem. And in this, we are approaching the big event where Jesus will give his life. And he rides in on a donkey, fulfilling the scripture from the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9 of his book. And he says, Don't be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And so Jesus gets on a donkey's colt and he rides into the city. Now here's the setting. <clears throat> the disciples, as, as we're reading through this passage, I'm not reading every verse, but the disciples did not really understand the significance of what Jesus was doing as he rode in on the donkey. It, it says that they really didn't know what was going on, if you read through the passage. But the crowds came out cheering because of hearing that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So you have all the cheering, you have the disciples kind of wondering, and then we have the response of the Jewish religious leaders to all of this commotion of Jesus riding through and people screaming. And here it is in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So here is what we have. The scriptures talk of the Messiah coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. Okay, that's what kings did. So the people are cheering the coming of their Messiah King. He has raised Lazarus from the dead, and everybody knows that. And that's just, that's just what the, the story is, and you know, true story. So we have people cheering their coming Messiah King. The disciples are wondering, what's happening here? And the religious leaders are thinking, they'd better get rid of this Jesus if they want to hold on to their power. So you have all that happening at once. And you think of this. Jesus is fulfilling scripture. Everything is going to God's plan. But it looks like a mess when you're, look, when you're watching it. It's not happening like anyone would imagine. God is bringing it all together to fulfill the scriptures... But it doesn't look like anything that we would put together. And it's confusing. And there's people cheering, and there's people hating, and the, and the disciples don't know what's going on. But it's the way that God is fulfilling his promises. He has sent his promised Messiah, who has proven himself to be the long-awaited Messiah King. He's proven himself through the miracles and through his wisdom. But things really aren't working out the way we would have imagined. You know, if the Messiah comes and he does miracles and people follow him and people are ready, you know, to turn their lives around, yet there are people against him and just, just seems like kind of this 
mashup of mixed things. Yet, it is all working out in the plan of God. And that is how we know that we must trust the scriptures and God's wisdom and power to fulfill everything that he's promised. Because he can even work through chaos and disobedience and evil <clears throat> and having his, his followers not really know what's going on. And he can still accomplish what he's, he's set out to accomplish. Even when things look like God's promises aren't coming true, and we can't see how any way that they ever could, he's still working everything out for good ultimately. Even when evil is in there, isn't he? And you know, today we have people so in big numbers deconstructing their faith, they call it, because they can't make out what God is doing. They see something they, they think is unfair, and they say, well, why didn't God stop that? Or they say there couldn't be God because look at people suffering. But you know, if we follow the Bible, we see many, many things coming to pass in ways that we could never have imagined. We read how they came to pass, but if we go back and look, <clears throat> we can see how nobody thought it would ever turn out that way. And the more we look into the scriptures, the more we see how God makes the impossible come to pass. And the more we walk by faith and obedience, the more we will be fitting into God's plan. You know, there's this, I don't know, kind of little saying or cartoon or something. Uh, <clears throat> years ago, where you have these scientists and they're trying to find the, the, the truth, find the truth. And so they're climbing this mountain. At the top of the mountain is supposed to be truth. So these scientists are climbing up, and, you know, and, and they're using all their scientific knowledge to kind of come to the truth. And you know, they're slipping and falling and tearing their clothes and dropping food. You know, it's, just, it's a mess just trying to get up to the top of that mountain. They're working so hard to get up there. And then <clears throat> they finally get up to the top of the mountain. They look over the edge, <clears throat> excuse me, and they see these five theologians Bible believers, having been up there all the time, knowing what the truth was, because they were looking at the Bible. So the scientists had to bow to the, to the uh, theologians because God said it all the way through. And the scientists basically had to kill themselves to get to the answer, and never do sometimes. So we see that Jesus' enemies are intent on killing him, and they're even talking about killing Lazarus because he's the main reason people are rejoicing in Jesus. Jesus rides into the city on a donkey to fulfill the scriptures. He shows himself as the rightful king. And now Jesus' time has come. I want you to look with me at verses... 23, we're going to skip down to 23 through 34. It says, Jesus replied, you see, two disciples came up to Jesus, Philip and Andrew, and they said, there are some Greeks wanting to see you. And then Jesus says, 
The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And the connection there is, you know, the Greeks are outside of the Jewish community. They're the non-Jews. And so that's kind of a, a clue or a sign that when the Greeks come to Jesus, wanting to know Jesus, okay, now he's ready to be sacrificed because he's reached the world in a sense. <clears throat> that's, the, that's the meaning. Very truly I tell you, well, let's, let's go back here. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, Jesus replied. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now we're going to get into this passage and everything's going to seem counter to what we would think. You know, you, would, you wouldn't think that something would have to die in order to produce. Usually when something dies, it can't produce anymore. But that's how God has made these seeds, right? They have to, you know, uh, I want to say German, that's not it. But uh, this, what did you say? Germinate, sprout. sprout, fall apart, whatever. <laughs> you can sit up here and be my comedian if you want. <clears throat> anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, these are all seem like backwards, don't they? Anyone who loves that means anyone who wants to hang on to this earthly life and won't let go and keep earthly standards and keep earthly dreams <clears throat> uh, will lose their life ultimately. And anyone who hates their life in this world, just meaning, you know, turning from this world to the eternal world, eternal life, will keep their life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said, the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I'm, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die, being lifted up on the cross. <clears throat> the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? <clears throat> Jesus sees his suffering and death as his pathway to being glorified. He says, for a kernel of wheat to produce many seeds, it must first go into the ground and die. 
And if the seed does not go into the ground and die, it won't produce anything. And he then says, comparing it to life, anyone who loves their life on this earth and clings to it will end up losing it and, and lives their whole life for earthly treasures. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, it sounds backwards, doesn't it? You know, just in normal language. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone who keeps their life, whatever. In the Jewish culture, love and hate were often used as describing choosing one, one choice over the other. One thing over the other. You know, God says in the Bible, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And what that just means is, he chose Jacob to be to carry the line of the chosen people. And Esau, he did not choose. <clears throat> it's like when you choose one, you are necessarily rejecting the other because you can only choose one. You know, when I see this, I think of the old movies or TV shows where the adult Jewish son comes to his mother who he's been living with for years, and he tells her, Mom, you know, Sally and I want to get married. And he's been living there helping his mother all along. His mother hears the news and says, why do you hate me? He says, Ma, I don't hate you. It's just that I think it's time Sally and I get married. I probably said another name before. It. Get married and start our own family. And so it's seen as when you choose one, the others look like it's hate. So Jesus is saying anyone who chooses this earthly life over eternal life will lose everything. And that is what the religious leaders were doing, weren't they? In the most costly, destructive way. They were choosing their earthly authority and prominence and status and wealth over humbly bowing to God's chosen one and suffering whatever earthly consequences that comes with that choice. And that's what we have to face often in this world when we choose God's way over our way, over the earth way. And that is a choice every person has to make. Following Christ while choosing not to follow the ways of the world that are against God. And that can be very, very costly, earthly speaking. Jesus says, <clears throat> whoever serves me must follow me. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And then he says, shall I ask my Father to spare me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So Jesus lived his whole life for heaven, for heaven's ways, for his, for his father's approval and doing his will. Jesus says the pathway to glory is basically being willing to choose the heavenly pathway or over the earthly rewards pathway. The heavenly pathway is the road to eternal life. The heavenly pathway is choosing Christ over earthly values or fame or prominence or wealth 
or any of those choices that will take us away from Christ. <clears throat> the heavenly pathway turns us away from the earthly choices that will take us away, and, and in that we embrace Christ, and sometimes we pay the earthly price. It's clinging to God's word and its principles instead of letting our hearts be drawn to earthly praise and goals that turn, away, turn us away from following Christ. It's making those choices all the time in our lives, choosing Christ's ways against the world's. I think that sometimes we become amazed at how much earthly glory and admiration and prominence people can receive by going against God's ways. Because, you know, the world, they think earthly. And they, they celebrate people who go against God's ways. You know, whether it's Hollywood or world politics or make it in into that billionaire club that tries to tell everyone else what they can eat, what they can't have. And everybody oohs and awes at their achievements. So many are listening to their advice as if they can have, never be wrong because how successful they become in the business world in earthly ways. And Jesus was never swayed by the powerful. Jesus always chose to be led by the Holy Spirit. He always clung to the scriptures. <clears throat> it didn't matter to him how powerful or popular or wealthy someone was. He always chose heavenly over earthly. He chose the way of the cross when he had the freedom to choose any way he wanted. He chose God's way over man's way. So let me finish with looking again at 23 through 26. Jesus replied, that's when the, the Greeks were looking for him, the hour has come for the Son of Man.